Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Hillary. And this is the Probably Not Lupus podcast, where we discuss medical mysteries and entertain you with curious and uncommon case studies. These are based on mostly true stories collected from real people, history, journals, and fellow doctors. To protect privacy, names, dates, and locations may have been altered. Get ready for your medical mystery bolus. Probably Not Lupus is a show about our favorite medical mysteries. Nothing the hosts say should be taken for medical advice or opinion. We are not experts, nor are we journalists. It's just for fun. So enjoy. It's one of the most fascinating true crime stories of all time. And on the surface, it appeared to be a mother and daughter duo against the world. Mom was a full-time caregiver to her extremely sick daughter who was diagnosed with multiple and serious medical conditions. So many, in fact, it seemed unbelievable. And when a mysterious post went up on Facebook suggesting something terrible had happened, the curious case of Dee Dee Blanchard and her daughter, Gypsy Rose Blanchard, began to unravel. Welcome back to the last episode of season one of the Probably Not Lupus podcast. Yes, welcome. It is our last hurrah of the season, episode 10. We freaking made it. We made it all the way to the end of the season. Thank you so much for doing this with me. It has been a little bit of fun. I definitely can also say I've had a great amount of fun. And we want to say thank you to those of you who have listened to an episode here or there or maybe you've stuck with us the whole season and you've listened to our episodes every Monday morning on your commute into work. And also thank you to those of you who are listening in the future and binging the entire season all at once. Yeah, we thank you all for your support, whether we know you in real life or not. It has been a pleasure. But for today, we are thrilled to bring back a previous guest from our EOE episode, Dr. Jesse Goodall, MD, to discuss the rarest, strangest, and most unusual case of the entire season. Yes. And if you haven't listened to the EOE episode, maybe take a little listen back and see what you're getting yourself into today with this wonderful guest. So listen now as we discuss Munchausen syndrome by proxy and the nuances of recognition and diagnosis with Dr. Jesse Goodall, MD. Hey, Jesse, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be back. Thanks for agreeing to meet us so late. I know it's a time change for you. So we appreciate you working with us on these weird time zones. It's truly my pleasure. All right. If you're an avid true crime follower, you have probably heard of the case that we're going to talk about today. In July 2016, 24-year-old Gypsy Rose Blanchard was sentenced to 10 years in prison after pleading guilty to second-degree murder 
in the brutal stabbing death of her mother, Dee Dee Blanchard. So how did we get here? And how does this relate to an interesting medical case? And it actually starts three months after Gypsy was born. Her mother, Dee Dee, rushed her to the hospital after this sleep apnea-related breathing issue. It's kind of unclear in my research what was going on, but something was happening with the baby's breathing, and she was brought to the hospital. And over the next several years, Gypsy would be diagnosed with many medical conditions, problems with her eyes, her hearing, her digestive system. She had asthma, allergies, anemia, muscular dystrophy. She was also diagnosed with some unknown chromosomal disorder, and she was told she wouldn't live to be 18. She was also told she had reduced mental capacities and the mental age of a seven-year-old. She also was diagnosed with cancer like leukemia, incontinence, heart murmurs, The list goes on. And from 2005 and 2014, there are more than 100 documented medical visits for this patient. Doctors even performed multiple surgeries. She had feeding tubes inserted because of these unknown digestive issues. She was confined to a wheelchair. Um, And I actually encourage listeners to go online and Google this case because you'll be able to see photos of all the medical supplies that were stored in the house. And it was really an entire closet full of drugs in the home. You can also see photos of Gypsy herself. And if you're familiar with the case, you might recognize that she had always really been dressed in a very youthful manner. She spoke in a very soft tone and a very high-pitched voice, very childlike. She also had severe tooth decay and a bald head, and she used a motorized wheelchair. In the documentary that was done about this crime, uh, there's many documentaries and true crime podcasts alike on it. There are lots of interviews with the neighbors of Gypsy Rose and Dee Dee, and really no one assumed anything other than there was this adorable mother-daughter who are against the world by themselves, dealt this terrible card in health conditions, and plagued by these tragic medical problems. And in fact, the community really rallied around them and provided support and did fundraisers and really tried to help them the best of their abilities. But then... In June of 2015, when the police were called to do a welfare check on Dee Dee Blanchard, everything changed when they found her brutally stabbed to death in her home. Finally, investigators began to piece together what was really happening with Gypsy Rose Blanchard. Mainly, when she was interviewed by the police, she was able to stand. She did not need her motorized wheelchair. And as the investigation continued, they discovered that during the medical visits, Dee Dee would do all of the speaking. And something interesting in the family history section, so when the doctors were assessing the family history for her, depending on the specialist they were at, that was the family history they provided. So example, when they went to go see a cardiologist, there was a significant family history of cardiovascular disease. When they went to see an oncologist, there was all this family history of cancer in the family. It wasn't until 2007 when a neurologist visit led to the first documentation of maybe something fishy was going on in this case. So this doctor actually noted in his chart that the mother was not a good historian and did not provide adequate history when asked. And this doctor also noted on examination that for a person who hadn't walked in nine years due to her alleged um, muscular dystrophy, Her muscle tone was normal and she had normal imaging as well. Like an MRI, for instance, was normal. 
And this doctor actually noted in his chart that she did not have muscular dystrophy and instead believed something called Munchausen by proxy should be considered the diagnosis. As I mentioned, this was in 2007 and the murder didn't happen until 2015 because Dee Dee continued to manipulate those around her leading to a long scheme of medical fraud. Some of you might be wondering, how did Gypsy Rose not understand what was happening to her and that this was all fraud and she was not actually sick with all these conditions? And there's a lot of reasons. So number one, there's mental abuse happening. She's being told constantly she has all of these conditions. Number two, as I mentioned, she had a feeding tube and Didi was giving her medications daily through that feeding tube. And again, if you check the list, it's a long list of different medications, a lot of them mind altering. And a lot of the treatments for these symptoms were actually leading to many of the other symptoms that then other doctors were picking up on and treating. So after all of these years of being lied to and being deceived, Gypsy Rose and her then boyfriend, who also suffered from mental illness, brutally stabbed Dee Dee to death. After the stabbing, there was a Facebook post and she posted the bitch is dead. And there's another post that I can't repeat on this podcast because of its explicit content, but it's easily searchable on the internet for those interested. After she gets discovered for this murder, she is put on trial. Although her defense did argue that she had trouble distinguishing what is real and what is fake, and that she couldn't even really fully comprehend if death is real, exaggerated, or fabricated, she was sentenced to prison for 10 years, and Nick was sentenced to life in prison as well. And at the end of the most recent documentary, there's an interview with Gypsy where she speaks about how she feels now and looking back on her life. And despite everything she's been through, she feels relieved to be free of her mother's abuse. She'll be 32 years old by the time she's eligible for parole in 2024, but she says that her prison stint is preferable to continuing her life with Dee Dee. She said, quote, I get to start over. I'm newly born. And that is the curious case of Gypsy Rose Blanchard. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. Had, had either of you ever heard of this case before in the past? Did it ever come up? Not this specific case. And certainly not cases ending in such fortunate, gory ending. Mm-hmm. Usually it's the child who ends up dying as a result of this sort of behavior. And this is why we are so lucky to have you here. Because the reason why I brought up this case was because of the diagnosis that that neurologist suggested way back in 2007 of Munchausen's by proxy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a disease that's really hard to estimate how common it is. Probably most cases go undetected, unfortunately. It sounds like the most common way parents, usually mothers, unfortunately, engage in Munchausen by proxy or factitious disorder by proxy is essentially smothering or causing apneas. So there's likely a subset of SIDS cases, sudden infant death syndrome, where children stop breathing, that are actually, in fact, essentially murders. They're really hard to detect. It's interesting you say that, because if you remember from the case, the first symptom that 
Gypsy Rose ever presented to the hospital with was sleep apnea related breathing issues. Yeah, I'd never heard of this specific case, but I was following a girl on TikTok and listening to her story. And a lot of her future medical conditions were actually just caused by drug side effects. And yeah, how would we ever know how often that's actually happening? Wasn't this the, also the premise for the sixth sense? Was it the, one of the ghosts that he saw, if I remember correctly? Uh, the mom was poisoning the girl and eventually died. I think that was probably the first time I'd ever heard about this sort of thing. I was a child and I was like, I asked my mom, like, why would a mom do that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> kind of unbelievable. Yeah. I was looking up some, I mean, I have some cases of my own experience, but I was looking up some cases. One of the ones that I think most medical practitioners learn about just because it involves learning about pharmacology kids coming in with hypoglycemia repeatedly the mom happens to be a type 1 diabetic herself insulin dependent over the course of this day she keeps having these episodes of hypoglycemia at a few points her iv they they find the line is leaking it took them a little while to put everything together but it turns out the mom was putting insulin like injecting the line with insulin she was convinced that the child had diabetes or wanted this diagnosis for whatever reason not understanding that diabetics don't really go hypoglycemic on their own that much usually it's a result of them having insulin and not and not only that but one of the first things you do there's a whole battery of tests when you have a kid who you think might have diabetes and and a couple things you do is you check their insulin level and you check their c peptide level this is important because when your body makes insulin, it starts out as a precursor protein. And then it's that precursor is cut into two pieces. One is insulin and one is C-peptide. So you can't, your body, when it makes insulin, it makes C-peptide just as much as it makes insulin. So if the insulin was coming from your body, your C-peptide would be elevated. Like for example, this can happen if you have an insulin producing tumor, rare, but happens. Right? then you have a lot of C-peptide and a lot of insulin. If somebody just gave you insulin, then you'd only have high insulin and, and no C-peptide. And that was the case for this girl. Now it takes a couple of days for these tests to come back. So they didn't have the answer right away, but it came back. I mean, at that point, it's pretty clear that somebody's given her insulin. In this kind of case, they just bar her from the hospital for a couple of days and she gets better. And then they've got pretty much all the proof they need that she was getting administered insulin. I am assuming our listeners are probably wondering why would someone do this? Like right. what could possibly be the reason for this? And really the disease is characterized by falsified general medical or psychiatric symptoms. The patient's caregiver or whoever the person is deceptively misrepresents, stimulates or causes symptoms of an illness or injury. And even in the absence of obvious external rewards, like financial gain, housing, or something like that. So it's not like this person has anything to gain by doing this to the child, but they still are doing it. And it really is child abuse. I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, there's so many, traditionally the word Munchausen, it's an interesting history that it came from. Munchausen was a character, uh, like a fictitious character who told these fantastical made up stories, but they were believable because he was just such a good storyteller. This condition was initially described for the individual who has Munchausen, somebody who's making up their own medical story for themselves. And traditionally, it's not for secondary gain. It's not, you know, to get a sick note to get out of work or 
whatever. That's secondary gain. That means you have some other secondary thing you're trying to get out of it. In the classical Munchausen, there's there's something psychologically wrong with the person that they get a, an internal benefit, a mental benefit from being the victim, from being the patient. They're driven by that goal. You get into some tricky territory when you start talking about Munchausen by proxy because we think about that classic situation where stereotypically the mom has some sort of mental gain from having her child be in the ill role. But it also happens for other reasons too. You know, there are a number of examples in the literature and doctors will debate whether these are appropriately called Munchausen by proxy or not. But there's a, a wide variety of cases. So some of them would be examples such as maybe a mom going through, a mom and a dad going through a contentious divorce with custody battles. And the mom keeps coming to the doctor alleging sexual abuse of the daughter or son. And it's subjecting the child to repeated invasive exams. In this case, there's a secondary gain. In this case, presumably, somebody's trying to leverage this for getting custody. Right. Kind of like in the case where Didi was getting financial gain from like those around her who felt sorry for her right. and were giving her money and things. Absolutely. The important, so when you're talking about the individual, the, like the classic Munchausen to yourself or to the, the patient's self, that distinction perhaps matters a little more because you're treating that patient. When you're talking about it in the context of a child, I mean, it could be an elderly person too, but Munchausen by proxy or fictitious disorder by proxy, the motivation of the abuser doesn't matter. And some practitioners might argue about that. The American Academy of Pediatrics does not. They're pretty adamant. The, the, in no other context does the motivation of an abuser matter. Like if we take sexual abuse, for example, there might be a lot of reasons that a person sexually abuses a child, but none of the reasons really matter at the end of the day. At the end of the day, the child is being abused. The practitioner's duty, society's duty to the child is to, to protect the child, stop the abuse. You know, the therapists of the abuser, they might care why the abusers doing what they do if you're trying to treat them if you're trying to rehabilitate them but from the point of view of caring for the child it doesn't matter so kind of the key elements the common elements in all these sorts of different cases are that there's an insistence by the caregiver that something is wrong an absence of pathological findings and then consequent harm to the child that's that's really kind of the overarching theme among these different types of stories. And there's, di there's different ones too. Some other ones, just to kind of elaborate a little more, some other examples could include, and I, you know, and reading this, I kind of think back to some of my patients, maybe a mother insisting that her child is ADHD when really doesn't meet the criteria, you know, and, and despite being told over and over, insisting, maybe going to multiple providers, because she wants her kid on stimulants. It could be something like really nefarious, like wanting to divert or sell the narcotics. It could be something less nefarious, like just having a hard time with behavioral management issues and feeling like the stimulants will be a, a silver bullet to fix mm -hmm. everything, which they pretty much never are. Another example would be a parent who's 
inadvertently essentially starving her child because she wrongly believes that her child has lots of food allergies or insensitivities. Yeah, I came across a list of the most common falsified symptoms. Let me read it to you, see if any of these sound familiar or ring true. Abdominal pain, joint pain, chest pain, coagulopathies or problems with bleeding disorders, diarrhea, blood in the urine, hyperthyroidism or hypercortisolism, hypoglycemia, infections, seizures, skin wounds that do not heal and weaknesses. And it's, it's interesting to bring all these up because it's such a, it's such a tricky situation. When, when a, a patient, an adult patient comes in, there's certainly subgroups out there who read about things on the internet. I think we're seeing this a lot right now with the anti-vaccine kind of craze, right? And it's, it's unfortunate because there's a lot of nefarious forces at work that are really fueling it. And, and it, it's hard to really put the blame on individual patients because, you know, most people don't have a medical degree. And, and even when you do have a medical degree, it can be really confusing. You know, so I really want to be careful about what I'm saying here. So, you know, there's, there's certain kind of conditions that have a following on the Internet. Like, for example, chronic Lyme disease. You know, patients read about a lot on the Internet. They have groups and support groups and... Um, you know, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of medical literature to kind of support some of what's being said. So glad you brought it up. If you want to learn more about chronic Lyme, listen to episode nine. We just did that last week. Just as an example, not to like For open sure. a can of worms. No, but um, it's relevant. Absolutely. And so when a patient comes in for themselves, it's a very different situation because let's say, let's just hypothetically, like we'll make a new one up, a new condition, Right. There's some condition that the doctors never heard of. There's no scientific literature to support it, but the patients insisted on it. At worst case scenario, they're, they're putting their body on the line, right? I mean, there's still ethical considerations. I'm not saying it's like, just go along with whatever the patient says. I'm not, I'm not really commenting one way or the other. I'm just saying there's so much more complexity when it's a parent insisting on something on behalf of their child. For sure. So I think what's really important is you say, first and foremost, this is medical child abuse. Mm -hmm. And that whole insistent thing is really important because a lot of the times the children won't speak or they won't know how to express their feelings or anything. So uh, what are some steps that medical professionals can take to verify history? So it's, it is really challenging. Um, you know, I've, in my career, residency i've seen a number of cases where i've really felt for myself i've been concerned about it but very rarely do i see doctors ready to pull the trigger and call it abuse and even other types of abuse that's a that's a big deal but what i will say what i feel like moving forward in my own independent practice is that if you're having the conversation about could this be abuse? If that discussion is even being had, it's already time to report. Because it's not really the, the medical practitioner's job to investigate. We don't go to, uh, despite what house might teach us, we don't go to people's houses. We don't break in and like, and look through their closets. We, we don't do yeah. that. That's 
the job of CPS and maybe the police. And if we have a suspicion of abuse, that's when you're supposed to report. Because it could save a life, really. And the other really important thing to stress here is that Munchausen by proxy, fictitious disorder by proxy, this is not a diagnosis of exclusion. And let me elaborate, you know, for the audience, what does that mean, diagnosis of exclusion? An example that I'll give easily would be like irritable bowel syndrome. So what it means to be a diagnosis of exclusion means that you need to exclude other things before you diagnose irritable bowel syndrome. And there's a good reason for that because irritable bowel syndrome is a condition that's mostly managed with lifestyle modifications, maybe some medications. And generally speaking, by definition, irritable bowel syndrome, it's not fatal. So you have to, you have to rule out other things, right? You have to rule out Crohn's disease or, or inflammatory bowel disease or, or tumors or any number of other things before you can come to irritable bowel syndrome. You can't just jump to that right away. That's not the case with Munchausen by proxy. I think a lot of times practitioners want to be really confident before they start labeling somebody an abuser, which I understand. When you have a patient who comes in, for example, with what we'll call it somatic symptom disorder, or they're, they're having symptoms, the general rule is believe your patient. If they're telling you that they're having these symptoms, you certainly don't just jump and assume that they're making it up for some reason. But again, this is the difference between treating an adult patient and treating a, a pediatric vulnerable patient is, is certainly you do want to start from a place of trust. Like you want to have that, but there needs to be a higher index of suspicion for abuse because it's a vulnerable patient who can't speak up for themselves. You can't just rule out everything else and leave abuse as the last thing that you consider. Once you've, in your example, Hillary, that you gave, that neurologist who first mentioned the possibility of Munchausen by proxy, this doctor probably should have reported that and, and aggressively pursued that differential. You know, I don't know what that, how that doctor even could have necessarily investigated it further. Probably would have, I guess that would be a whole kind of other section to our talk right here. What do you do? Yes, exactly. What do you do once, once you've, that, that's got into your mind? Okay, so you file a CPS report. The reality is I, I haven't done this in Canada yet, but in America, a lot of times that doesn't do much. It's, it's a pretty high threshold before CPS really meaningfully gets involved. You know, a lot of really bad abuse is tolerable to the underfunded, overworked CPS. I'm not blaming them. I'm just, it's the reality of, you know, budget decisions in, in our society. And if we think about the case, we're also dealing with highly manipulative people who understand Absolutely. how to manipulate situations. Well, and another thing that like in, in your typical kind of abuse cases where it's like physical abuse or neglect, honestly, it's a little bit easier to manage it. But once you start talking about Munchausen by proxy, where people are fabricating illnesses, that's, it's hard to just say it's up to CPS to investigate it because you really need a medical professional. This is an actual diagnosis. You know, it can be tempting as a doctor to make a referral to social work and let them figure it out. But this is a medical diagnosis that has to be made by a doctor. So back to the question, what do you do? The part of the problem is that the presentations are so varied. 
it's not like there's one thing that parents, mothers mostly, but parents do or other caregivers do. It's, there's not one type of case. It's so, so many creative, it can be as, as weird as causing sepsis by taking dirt or, or feces and infecting the kid with it. And because it's, it can be very medically complex, it can be really hard to do. But I think, I think the most important thing is if you have a really complex diagnosis, this defying all of your medical expertise, Munchausen by proxy, factitious disorder by proxy needs to be at the forefront of your mind. So what do you, what do you do to investigate? Well, that, that can vary a little bit. I, I think back to when I worked in, in Baltimore and we had a number of cases and maybe we'll talk about this some other day, but we had a number of cases of, of PANDAS. It's an acronym for a post streptococcal. So like a post strep throat type of phenomenon, really a theoretical phenomenon where there's radical changes in behavior theoretically associated with some sort of strep throat infection or autoimmune disease secondary to a strep throat infection. We know that strep throat can lead to autoimmune disorders and we know it can affect the mind because you can get something called Sydenham's chorea, which is where you have this dystonic movements of your body because of a autoimmune disease affecting the brain. But it's one of these situations sort of like I was talking about earlier where the literature is really tenuous and some doctors will, will vehemently disagree with me on this. So, and, and I'm not by any means well researched on this topic. I know it's a controversial area. So where I was working, you know, we had a couple neurologist practitioners who sort of specialized in cases that were diagnosed as pandas. And we get people coming in from all over the country for the specialty care. And I remember at least one family, and I don't want, I want to be careful about not getting into too many details, but it was a case that reminded me a lot of the story that, that, that you gave at the beginning of this talk, where and the, the daughter was a little, older, like teen years, and, and the, the mom, just the way the story was constantly changing, and it was like she had a gazillion things, and she'd been exposed to so many invasive procedures, and was getting lumbar punctures on the regular, and, and it seemed like the daughter had kind of internalized a lot of it, like, almost felt like a somatic disorder, like, that she had just, almost like this learned helplessness. That's sort of what Gypsy Rose also describes after the fact when she's doing interviews now is that she knew she could walk. That she did understand, but everything else, she said she did experience a lot of these symptoms. Now, it probably was because they were caused by the invasive procedures and the medications, but she really did believe that she had cancer. She really did believe that she was very ill and yeah. that it was her and her mother against the world. So one of the things is important when you get a case like this, I left before I, I knew any resolution to it. And, and just for the listener, you know, they, this was something that was being actively pursued in this case. But one of the things you do is you try to get basically a conference call with the entire team. Anybody you know who's had involvement in this patient's case. 
Oh, that's smart. And then collectively go over the history together. And try to figure out, is, is there something real? You know, maybe there's some stuff that's real and some stuff that's not. I mean, it doesn't need to be an all or none thing. You know, maybe mm-hmm. parts are being embellished and there is stuff that needs to get treated too. I mean, that's one of the, the difficulties about labeling somebody as Munchausen or Munchausen by proxy is then from that point forward, everybody's incredibly suspicious anytime they try to access care. But, you know, kids who are the victims of Munchausen by proxy still need care. Like they can still break an arm. They can still get sick, you know? So, you know, that, that can be tricky. So as far as diagnosis, other things you can consider, it depends on what you're suspecting, but AP was even saying you could consider surreptitiously videotaping. You know, a lot of rooms are equipped with cameras. You know, in our ICU, all the rooms have cameras anyways, not necessarily to for this purpose, but because, you know, if, if a kid starts seizing or having some sort of emergency, it's just one more step to, to be there quickly. But one of the big things, honestly, do the symptoms go away when the suspected abuser is removed? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. If you're having a situation like the hypoglycemia, if you've gotten to the point where you're you're really considering Munchausen by proxy, then it's, it's you need to involve CPS. Once you're really worried about abuse, you need to tell the parent, and you probably need to remove the parent from the hospital and have a period of observation. Obviously, interviewing the child separately is pretty big. It's um, interesting too because. Gypsy Rose, she, as soon as she was caught, like as after the murder happened, she walked immediately, like right away gave it up that, okay, well, at least this part has been a fabrication and no one had asked her if she could walk before. I find it curious too. What jurisdiction was that? Missouri. Yeah. Springfield, Missouri. You know, cause like, I know there's some, I don't know how it works with child abuse, but I, I'm understanding that there's, I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but I, I thought that there was some jurisdiction that had like battered housewife clauses in murder cases where, you know, because usually the law on self-defense is pretty specific. You need to, in that moment, be fearing for your life. And, and this case is difficult because it was pretty clearly premeditated. I mean, there's debate about that. Right. Because if you do go back and you read the text messages, yes, they are literally saying like, let's kill the bitch. You can also tell that there's a high degree of fantasy in their conversation, that they are not closely anchored to reality and the actual consequences of the words they are saying. And no no matter what, whether it was premeditated or not, uh, I have to imagine that probably a good number of people in the audience are listening to this being like, I'm not saying what she did was right, but I get it. Mm-hmm. You know, and especially when, the way she says afterwards. I'd rather be in jail than be under the care of my mother. Yeah. It's like there's, she understood the consequences and was willing to pay that price to to get out of that situation. You know, when you hear that, it's, I don't know. She's brainwashed, it's, really. Well, and she said in an interview that she knew one of her diagnoses was delayed development. And she yeah. thought, she said, quote, you know, I thought if I told the doctors this was happening, they would just think, oh, she's retarded and doesn't know any better. And that, that's not an unreasonable thing to think. I mean, I you yeah. know, obviously, hopefully the doctor doesn't. But I mean, this this case was a failing. Right. And I'm, I'm not I'm trying not to be too hard on 
any person in this case, but like the system did fail her, right? Like doctors did suspect Munchon by proxy and did not aggressively pursue it. If you have enough suspicion to put it in a note, you need to be reporting it. The next line in that sentence should be, and I made, a, I filed a report with CPS. Well, and you know what? I'm not an expert investigative journalist or a journalist at all. Yes. <laughs> maybe that did happen. And maybe like yes. you said, it made it to CPS and then fizzled. Like, right. who knows? It's, it's, it's more um, the steps to prevent from happening in the future for preventing happening in your own practice, things like that, that we're talking about today. Like you say, we're not necessarily here to just like tear down doctors for missing this. This truly was an extraordinary case. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and these are, I don't want to make it sound like these are so easy to catch because they're not. No, there's probably so many cases out there that go missed. I guess the last component that I think is worth talking about here is once you've established the diagnosis, now what? Mm -hmm. As a side note, I would always tell my family when I'm involving CPS and, and I always say, the primary, and this is true, the primary goal of CPS is not to remove children from homes, despite what a lot of people will say. They generally try to provide support and, and help as much as possible for the child to stay in the home. Mm -hmm. And and I always clear with my patients, you know, I understand if they are upset with me, but, you know, I have a duty to report any possible suspicion, right? And I have no way of going home and verifying what's going on in the home. I just, I need somebody else to go to your home. And that's what CPS does. They go to your home, they interview you, they investigate you, that kind of thing. It's never a fun conversation. And I usually try to approach it more from a conciliatory point of view, it, it, depending on the circumstances. If it's obvious that it was some sort of physical abuse, that's different. But if it's just, if it's more of a suspicion, then it's more like, you know, we get a lot of different people that have come in here and we have no way, I've, this is my first time meeting you and I have no way of knowing I'm sure you're an amazing parent, but I have no way of determining the amazing parents from the ones who need some support mm -hmm. and help. Um, and, and you can still be an amazing parent and still need some support and help. <laughs> like there's nothing wrong with having some support and help. Mm -hmm. And also just not, not just for the child's safety, but also to help the parent or the mother get whatever sort of medical or psychiatric help that they also need too. Absolutely. So I want to try to remove some of the stigma involved with, CPS as much as possible. Okay, so back to the, the case at hand. You know, so some of the steps you can do are, at least in the US, perhaps involving the insurance company. Everything that gets billed, right? That's one kind of central point. Another step would be involving the school. Um, you know, so if there's a lot of absences that aren't getting explained or doctor's notes that aren't really accounted for, that's a, a mechanism to catch it. You know, so these are some some different ideas. And it, again, it really is going to depend on the case and how much risk there is, right? There, there can be kind of mild forms of this as right up to the serious and fatal forms. Right. And Emma, you brought up a good point there about, okay, we're talking about Munchausen by proxy. So the proxy is the patient. That's the case we're talking about. But there is another patient in this case. There is whoever is doing the abuse. They are also a sick person who needs treatment. Absolutely. Yeah. This is a. Um, it's very complex. Yeah. And again, that's not even getting into the motivation of the abuser. No, there's a lot more beyond that. It's the same thing with other types of abuse too, though. 
right? Mm -hmm. Just because, just because uh, a family hit their kids, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that those kids are, are going to be permanently taken away and put it up for adoption, right? Right. Most of the time, we're going to try to support those children to stay in the home. Well, it's, it's not, when I say we, it's not the doctors, it's CPS doing it, but. Right. And I think one of the things for our listeners to remember with Munchausen's or factitious disorder by proxy, we think it's relatively rare. We think it's underreported and there's probably more cases than are out there, but even so probably not that common. The most common type of abuse is neglect. It's not even, you know, physical or sexual abuse. It's, it's neglect. It's kids not getting enough to eat. It's kids not getting the medical care they need or deserve. Those are, make up the vast majority of CPS referrals and child abuse cases. No, I actually didn't realize that. Well, I think, I think more than half. Wow. You know, a lot of times it's 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 not intentional usually, and and this is another case with neglect. It's another case where it's important for our providers to remember that motivation doesn't matter. The fact that they're being neglected matters, right? Most cases of neglect, it's not intentional. It's not parents are not starving their kids intentionally. It's you know maybe they're mixing the formulas incorrectly, maybe. They don't realize how much formula a kid needs or they're not good at picking up hunger cues. There could be a variety of reasons. They're well-meaning. As a side note, when I was six weeks old, my parents left me with my grandma and they went to England for two weeks. And um, my mom wrote down three ounces of water per one scoop of formula. But my aunt read it as 30 ounces of water for one scoop of formula. And like three days in, my mom calls. It's like, how is Emma? She's crying all the time. Like, I don't know what's going on. Like my aunt's like, and they're not like my aunt's a nurse. She's not dumb. And she's like, yeah, like she's crying all the time. And my mom's like, that's like weird. Like I was very good until they left. And um, my aunt had read the instructions wrong and she was giving me like a 10th of the. Wow. (laughs) That's actually really scary too. Um, Thankfully, like within like two days, like it was caught, but like the parents were gone for over a week. <laughs> it's not just a hunger issue. When for you, sure. if you give a baby water, it can massively upset their electrolytes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like uh, totally unintentional. Like there was, there was no abuse yeah. or anything, but just, yeah. Of course. Yeah, no, kind of crazy. So these, these things are, are common. I mean, that's the first that's why in the first couple months, we have so many visits mm-hmm. with your doctor to check the weights and see that they're putting on weight properly because it's so common sure. to, to mix up how much to feed a kid. And the first thing we do is check how they're mixing the formula. <laughs> but yeah, that's the vast majority of, of sort of the abuse cases, you know, or you sometimes you get parents who are a little more belligerent, you know, and they might just be really reluctant to, to take the medical advice. Um, you know, especially if it's a kid who has more complex medical needs or even medium medical needs, like managing diabetes correctly. Wow. Well, we've really covered a broad scope of the different ways that children can be abused in this very upbeat episode that started with a horrific murder. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was a good, a good note to end on, I suppose.
Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to do this because these aren't easy conversations and these aren't um, easy things to even think about or prepare for. And we've been preparing for this episode for a long time. So again, we really thank you for sharing your expertise with us and the listeners and providing some insight to what it looks like in real life as a doctor. Thank you. Again, it's such a pleasure joining you with this series. And this is the last episode episode 10 of our first season and we couldn't think of a better way to end it than with you again thank you thank you so much for your time emma thank you for your time this season thank you for your time thank you to our listeners for putting up with us and maybe even enjoying and having a little fun along the way we hope you tune back in for season two coming mid-september september 13th right Yeah, and we're building our schedule now. So if you want to come chat with us, either as a patient, an expert, or anyone else who has a cool story, we would love to hear from you. Uh, You can reach us at our email, probablynotlupus at gmail.com, our Instagram at probablynotlupus. And if you wanted to leave an Apple podcast review or maybe a Google podcast review, we have over 250 listens now, and we are appreciative for every single one. Thank you. Stay tuned for next season. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Spotify, Google, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and YouTube at Probably Not Lupus. Probably Not Lupus is written, recorded, edited, and produced by us alone in our bedrooms. (laughs) I love that.